What's up everybody, Josh here. Just wanted to let you know that Brush Creek Monsters has been updating their site weekly with new Doe on Fire Estrus. Myself, Chris, Rick, and the rest of our team have been using Doe on Fire Estrus since late October with great success. So head on over to the website at brushcreekmonstersllc.com and get you a bottle of Doe on Fire. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors, and I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, custom ammunition and gun works. Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I gotta tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year, I used the 12, Josh used a 20, and uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads, and my god, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide-ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. Buck down, baby. Oh my gosh, that was freaking awesome. This is my first public land buck. This is my second set of the season. I can't believe. Oh my gosh, I just heard him fall. I just heard him fall. Uh. I just shot my Kentucky buck. Your host, Chris Leppert. And tonight we're going to do something a little different. We're going to do a little series on putting together an out-of-state hunt. And tonight I'm joined by my very special guests, Andrew Maxwell and Jacob Myers from the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. How you guys doing? Doing excellent. How are you? Doing really good. It's been a great fall, and we still got a lot of hunting left to do down here in the south. That you do. You guys have a season... That is weird to me. Uh, the more now that I'm coming down there to hunt with you guys, I've really thought long and hard about it. And the fact that these deer are hunted for three months and then they rut still doesn't really make sense to me. That's crazy. Seems like things are going to be very pressure oriented down there. So. We are doing a deer camp. Uh, roughly how many people would you say we have? Mm, like 12? Yeah, 10, 12-ish. Uh, okay. some, some, some may change, just depending on people's schedules, but it's going to be one heck of a deer camp. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Are, do we want to talk about names or no? Uh, I don't know. We didn't, we didn't talk about this ahead of time because there's some names that are still yeah. pending. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. We'll we'll leave that out. We'll leave that out yeah. for now. Um, I'm sure so, there'll be podcast recorded at the, <laughs> at the camp. Yeah, that's that's true. So we're going to be hunting in Alabama in the swamps. Um, 
for those of you that want to know more than that, I'm sorry, but I've been. <laughs> there will be no pictures in front of signs this year. No. So I'm really excited. Uh, I haunt the Midwest. Um, I'll, you know, what I thought was the South Kentucky is not the South. Uh, <laughs> I'm finding that out very quickly. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I've really been pouring through some of your guys' podcasts. Um, I've been pouring through some YouTube videos on hunting the swamps. And I guess my first question to you boys is got to be about e-scouting. Um, are you actually able to effectively e-scout down there like you do here, especially when you're talking about finding like thick cover and all that, where we're going to be like, you know, in swamp, in a swamp environment. Oh yeah. Uh, your rule of thumb for thick cover down here is like, it. it's like we live in uh Jurassic park or something like it is. It's, it's really, really thick. You have anywhere where sunlight is getting through the canopy, you're going to have really thick cover. So Basically, like if you're looking at Onyx or whatever and or Google or just whatever like imagery service that you're using, if you find an area that has like a gap in the trees, especially like in the summertime, uh, if there's like a gap in the trees right there, like it's going to be thick. A hundred percent, it's going to be thick. If there's not water, right? Like if it's not standing water, it's going to be thick. Uh, so you can tell like where your thickets are at. Uh, and then it's always good to, you know, use a bunch of different imagery sources to kind of figure out water levels and stuff if you're hunting a swampy environment. But basically think of it as like anywhere where you can see the ground, especially on a summertime image, but anywhere where you can like really see the ground, it's going to be pretty thick. And that goes for, I mean, it's probably similar like in the Midwest where you hunt, where if you've got field edges and you've got broken woodlots, the sunlight's going to be able to get down under the canopy and kind of angle in there. And you're going to have a soft edge that kind of melts back through the woods. It's like that here. Uh, but like I said, especially if there's like canopy gaps and stuff, you're going to have thick cover around. But also there can there's going to be thickets that are just kind of in there that you can't really see. Uh, like you might have like a privet thicket or like a palmetto thicket. Or you might have a cattail thicket. Not necessarily like a cattail morris you're like Dan Nichol talking about. But you can find a lot of that on the water's edge. Um, and we've had situations where you're bumping deer out of that, where that, mm -hmm. you know, especially like a year like this year, it's been a little bit dry. Um, so some of those cattails could be out of the water and not actually growing in the water and you get deer bedding in them. And that is a super, super dense cover along the water edge yeah. that, you know, in wet years, they may not use it because it's a floating mat of just, you know, nastiness. But in years like this, when it's been a little bit drier, you know, that's another addition to the thick cover that potentially, you know, the deer are going to use. And that's something you can see on aerial imagery as well. Like you can see it pretty well, uh, both summertime and wintertime imagery of where those, you know, cattails are at, where like palmettos are at, um, which is a very uh, thick. How, did, how would you describe palmettos, Andrew, for people uh, that are listening in the like Midwest? the loudest thing ever to walk It's like walking through, through uh, tam like tambourines. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, um, it's ridiculous. Palmettos? Yeah, palmettos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Big green leafy, looks like a, a palm fern that's growing up that could be anywhere from two feet tall to six feet tall. Um, it's like sneaking through like a field of drums. Yeah. Like drum set. Like it's, 
like such a deep sound. It, there's like no masking what it is. Uh, so yeah, that stuff. And you can kind of see that on, on really good leaf off imagery, that green hue underneath the canopy. That's what, that's either that or privet or something, something along okay. those lines. But like, oh. like, man, when you're looking at imagery and you see something that's like kind of wet looking, but there's like trees in it and maybe you see some fallen trees, especially around the edges, that's going to be like just an absolute hell hole. And there's going to be a buck in it. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> hey, there a buck or a bunch of always come, it, it always comes back to that. If you're like bitching and complaining and miserable, that's probably where he's at. Um, all right. So I was actually talking to Alan the other day, and that was probably his biggest piece of advice was to actually really key in on the water edge because there was a lot of vegetation there. And the way he described it, the edges of, you know, the water where he said that they would bed um, you know, would be thicker and then they could look out over the water, which would be very similar to a buck bedding in the hills, you know, putting putting everything else behind him and being able to look out over something. And I thought, damn, that is uh that's pretty sharp. Um so are you able to locate any kind of feed trees at all, e scouting? down there uh onyx has a has a layer that's uh acorn producing oaks so you can you can turn it on and it'll tell you if it's like mixed oaks red oaks or white oaks and uh that works really good actually mm -hmm. so now just because it's on the map obviously doesn't mean that it actually produced anything so you're gonna have to go ground check it but that that's probably the best e-scouting tool that i've found so far for locating those isolated pockets. Cause sometimes in these big swamps, you might, I mean, dude, you might be walking a long ways and there's no oaks. It's like poplars or like, uh, like tupelos or something, some um, other kind of tree that's not an oak. Like it's not just guaranteed that it's just going to be oaks through there, sweet gums. Yeah. Just all kinds of different stuff. So if you flip that layer on, and it's not oaks just all over the place, then I actually kind of like that because if you can find them in pockets, you know, you'll be in you'll be in better shape. So I would I would use that tool for that. Um, but also your oaks, um, really it's gonna take some boots on the ground, but also once you get out there and you start walking around a little bit, you're gonna be able to kind of key in on where the these oaks like to grow. So like a white oak. It's probably not going to be like right down and like the marshy crap that's just, just really wet. If you if if you see like a little high spot out in the swamp, that's maybe where you're going to find your white oaks or especially your red oaks. But water oaks, on the other hand, might be a little bit different. So and in January, those water oaks start dropping. They'll start. I mean, they might they might have been dropping already or they might just start dropping, but they produce a little little bitty acorn. I guess it's kind of like a pin oak. Okay, that was literally about what I was going to ask yeah, you. A little bitty, and they drop freaking millions of them, and they're excellent in January. So we've had luck in January actually hunting over those, as opposed to your white oaks. Because, I mean, most of your American white oaks are done at this point. A lot of your red oaks are maybe, you know, still kind of hot. But those white oak or water oaks can be really, really hot. Mm -hmm. and so, so you can, do they look you just like a pin oak? Do, yeah, well, well, the leaves don't. The leaves are like or it's called like a spatulate leaf. Um, so it looks more like a live oak. Have you ever seen a live oak? 
That'd be like a shingle oak. They don't have those. No, I mean, I don't know. Have you ever been to like Florida? <laughs> like, I have, but, uh, and I think I've seen, uh, I, I couldn't tell you, honestly. Once you start noticing them, they're a pretty distinct looking tree. And a lot of them will actually still have green leaves on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll be still dropping. So like you, you'll see them pretty quick. They're hard to find e-scouting sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, like I said, that on X layer is pretty, pretty good. And if you have like, like let's say you go to like Google Earth that has really good imagery that you can flip back through and you get like a like a December image, like where you can see this was taken in December of like whatever year. Sometimes in the the sea of gray where everything's gray, it's all hardwoods, and you got that green tree, and you can tell it's not a pine tree. A lot of times that's a water oak. Mm-hmm. And so you can go key on that. Okay. So and if you want to bust some ducks, bro. Let me tell you, that's a good place to go shoot some ducks too. If it's dropping into some water, yeah, I mean it's like God's bait pile. But what's funny is up here, the like everybody talks about how you know whitetails hit white oaks early and then the red oaks later because they've got to have a frost and rain and the tannins and all that. They nailed the red oaks early and have all year. I don't know that the whites did that great this year, but. Those pin oaks, I don't care what time of year it is, the deer smash them all day long. And I wonder if it's just because they're super easy to chew up. They're smaller. So I wonder if that's a thing, but that's really encouraging. I did not think (laughs) that I would run into any kind of dropping oak in January. So here we are again with (laughs) weirdness of the South where I'm like in a completely different country. I feel like, um, so wow, that, so, okay. So that leads me into my question. Do you guys target feed trees much during that time? Uh, if it, if I happen to run across one that's hot, then yeah. But like we're hunting or kind of early rut time frame is when we're timing this hunt. So we should be on the front half of the rut. So like, I'm still doing my pinch point funnel, hunting the does, maybe hunting some scrapes. Uh, like back in some cover and if i find a feed tree even better can you you equate this to the midwest like would this be similar to the last week of october first week of november mid-november what are we looking at when we're down there like probably like the week of halloween so really susceptible to calling if you find that first hot dough you're gonna have a good time (laughs) So we're, we're, we're not at the peak rut then we're like nearing the height of the pre oh my god yes okay yeah um, yeah like i think i think we're hitting it perfect because that's the part i like to hunt mm-hmm. um and people will say like in the south we got we have like a trickle rut which like people argue about whether or not that's actually the case but like you know we don't have like i, I will say that i i don't feel like i normally experience like a hard like five days of just insane rutting action. It's like nothing, 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 bunch of deer, nothing, 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 you know, and, and it kind of goes on for an extended period of time. So uh, I like to go in on the earlier part, which is why we timed the hunt like we did. Uh, Cause if you find that again, if you, like the bucks are starting to go cruise they're starting to do their thing. Mm-hmm. But if you find that first early doe, you're going to have a hunt like me and Jacob had last year and see like seven bucks in one morning and kill two of them. Yeah. You know, uh... so 
can you use deer pee down there? Yep. Yeah, if it's uh, it has to be like in out. Like if you buy natural deer pee in like Kentucky or Ohio and bring it down here, I think that's illegal now. You have to it. You have to use like native Alabama deer pee because like the CWD regulations. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right, isn't it? Okay. Processed urines uh, or synthetics. Um, but yeah, but like Andrew said, like we're on like the upper swing of the bell curve of the rut. So this is what gets me excited about is because like, like the feed tree aspect that you're talking about, like say, you know, finding some water oaks or willow oaks, which are very, very similar down these, these river bottoms and these swamps. If you find those and find the doe sign and find some really good pinch points around there, like, yeah, you probably need to have success, maybe hunt that feed tree, especially if there's some buck sign in that area, especially a lot of scrapes. But if you can find the transition and a pinch point in between the thick cover along the water to that feed tree, you could potentially have the best hunt. I'm not going to say your entire life because you, you probably not going to kill 170 inch deer down here, but you have <laughs> a really, really good hunt uh, with a bunch of mature bucks, you know, coming through trying to fight over one or two does and, and just have a great time. So that's actually been one of my bigger takeaways this year is I kind of, I like the feed trees and they are in the equation, but I'm not, it's like corn, like you don't sit over it. You know what I mean? So um, I was wondering how you guys would, would think about that. So, okay. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Um, when it comes to e-scouting, are you able to, do a decent job of anticipating pressure by looking at a map or is it like, cause that I, you all talk about pressure and I feel like every single person in every state says that they get a lot of pressure. So I'm wondering like, is this going to be like Ohio in the rut? Am I going to laugh at these guys when I get down here and still not see people like what's, what's going to happen. So I've, I've heard duck hunting would I would assume duck hunting will be in and that that will probably eliminate a lot of deer hunters. But I've also like heard duck pressure can change things. Other people say deer don't pay attention to the boat traffic and the gunfire. So what is your take on all that? Are are small game hunting still big in January down there? Are people fishing? Cause it's a lot warmer and I feel like you guys have a lot more people down there that are way more gung ho especially when it comes to the water you you have a lot more of it we don't we don't have any water here where i'm at so you've got like a few creeks and rivers and a couple of little lakes that you guys would laugh at so um kind of hit me up with that like what kind of pressure are we expecting am i going to be able to anticipate this in any way you know using a map or anything like that i mean where's the pressure going to come from you think uh i think that The thing is, is like, there's going to be a, a pretty good amount of people hunting the place. I, I haven't hunted it this time of year. I've hunted it earlier in the year and it gets a fair amount of pressure. Um, but a lot of the pressure is going to be really predictable. So if you look at a map and you kind of find the obvious spots that aren't that hard to get to, you're going to, you're the, the people are going to be hunting around them. Like maybe not right where you're going, but there's going to be pressure. Um, the, the weird part is that, there's some spots where you can go really far back and really bust your butt and, and just crawl through some stuff and have to cross water and just do all these terrible things to get back into this spot. Fight off water moccasins. Fight off water moccasins the size of your arm. And when you get back there, 
there's probably another dude hunting back there. It's not going to be like 15 people back in the same area, but like, you're not going to be the only one that knows about that place. Right. Uh, like there's people that get really far back. So like, I, I, I've never hunted the Midwest on like a, like a big rut hunt. So I don't know what that pressure's like. But the thing is for us, like, I don't think we have as much pressure, but we got a lot of guys who are like really hungry and really willing to just throw themselves at these hunts. And like, they will, I know a guy, I have to show you where, uh, where I'm talking about, but I know a guy who freaking walks back in there to where I'm talking about one of the spots specifically and sleeps on the ground, <laughs> which I would not do being from Alabama. I would not sleep on the ground in a swamp. Absolutely not. Uh, but but that's what I'm talking about. Like guys will do that kind of thing. So you might not be dealing with a lot of people, but you're dealing with like high quality hunters, you know, like these guys are willing to, to like really get after it. And also it's going to be a mix of both walk-in pressure, uh, cause a decent amount of the public, uh, there's parking areas and you can walk back into spots. And then because of the, uh, you know, Alabama and Alabama's not like necessarily a place that's known for duck hunting, but anytime you get on one of these rivers, you're going to have guys that are, you know, duck hunters, um, you know, guys are running mud motors, guys are running, you know, little outboards and stuff like that. So you're going to have boat pressure. Um, so, but typically, especially with a lot of these guys and we, I've told my bu- our buddy, uh, Jake memory about this, you know, they're using decent sized boats. So, they may, if they can get to something off like the main river, they w- they'll get to it with the boat. But a lot of these backwater areas, even with a mud boater, they may not take their boat all the way back into those spots. So if you're using a kayak or something like that, um, and kind of get creative through that access point, you can kind of get on the back side of where a lot of this pressure, you know, potentially could come from, especially, you know, you get a mile on the back side of a, you know, parking area. Um, and at daylight, you know, you got all these guys walking in, you know, bumping deer towards you, you know, again, you could have another great hunt if you have a really good pinch point going back to some thicker cover. Um, so, and then also just walking in the swamp. So, you know, you don't necessarily going to need chest waders, but knee boots, in my opinion, are a must. And a lot of this stuff, especially when we get some more rain coming up, it's still been pretty dry, but we've had a lot more rain last two weeks and get more coming. Um, so there's a good chance, you know, in certain areas you could be dealing with flooded timber uh, that's six, eight, ten inches deep, which again is not going to stop anybody down here from walking. But uh, it's nice to have a pair of hip waders or chest waders in the truck or in the boat, just in case. Hey, you hit like a ditch that's you know two and a half, three feet deep that a guy in knee boots isn't going to cross. You can get through that stuff, get on the other side, drop the waders, and, and hunt some stuff that's getting a lot less pressured. Okay, I like that. Um, let's talk elements. Uh, what kind of clothing are you guys going to expect to wear during the first week of January? Man, I might be wearing flip flops in camp. I might be wearing all my cold weather gear. You, I mean, you really don't know. Yeah. If if you look at, if you like type in wherever Alabama right now, like type in Birmingham, Alabama on the Weather Channel, and you go look at the 10-day forecast, you're going to see like 28 degrees, and you're going to see like 72 degrees on the extended forecast. So, I mean, it just kind of, it just goes, you know. Uh, so, yeah, we don't get consistently cold temperatures, and especially what 
we would classify cold probably a fairly mild winter for you guys. Like I'm sure, you know, mid late November, if it's not in the thirties, y'all are probably pissed. Uh, when it gets in the thirties down here, like I get excited, but that's pretty cool to cold, cold weather for us. Um, but I mean, it, again, it could be 65 degrees as the high while we're there, or it could be 45 degrees as the high while we're there. You know? Most likely it's going to be somewhere like in the fifties or sixties. Unless we get a good cold front, those are your highs are going to be in the 50s or 60s. If we get a good cold front that pulls those highs down into like the low 40s, that's like cold weather for us. Because that means in the in the mornings and evenings, you know, and at night, we're probably going to be in the 20s. And that's like, that's pretty cold for down here. Mm -hmm. So if we're lucky and get a cold front, it'll be like that. But most likely it's going to be like highs between 55 and 65. So that's going to be... it's. Hey, let me tell you, when uh, if it gets to be like 62, 63, sunny, you you ought to you ought to get some snake boots or something. <laughs> they will they will be out in force. Now they're pretty they're pretty docile. They're lethargic, you know, because it's still pretty cold for them. But buddy, you are gonna see some snakes. Let me tell you, <laughs> me and Jacob have some experiences on this place. <laughs> really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. One of those mornings is like in the low forties, upper thirties, and it gets up to like 68 degrees. And we decided to push further back into the swamp, not thinking about it was going to warm up. And right around noon, when it started getting in that 60 degree, and we're like two and a half miles in. And it's like snake, 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 you know, water moxin, cotton mouth, venomous snake, you know, some kind of, you know, water snake, banded water snake, stuff like that. And, you know, almost stepping on a few of them. Some of them had a little bit more attitude than others. Yeah, one of them squared up on us. Yeah. So with water between, water on both sides of us so yeah there was no place to go it was fun yeah so <laughs> oh my god <laughs> january man i'm not supposed to have to worry about this oh yeah. also mosquitoes so let me say this in the mornings probably ain't gotta worry about mosquitoes but if it starts getting up to 60 65 degrees you're gonna want something for mosquitoes in the afternoon like legitimately um because again we don't get a, as we don't get so much cold weather continuously to truly kill off a lot of those insects, anything with ticks. Um, so if we have, even if we get there and there was, you know, seven day window of time, it was in the seventies and all of a sudden it drops to the fifties. We'll still have mosquitoes at some point in the day when the temperature gets up to 55, 60 degrees. So um, again, you'll be, and also you're dealing with extremely high humidities, which I know in a lot of other places in the country, you know, you deal with humidities 70, 80 percent. There's a good chance while we're here, it's between 80 and 90 percent humidity. And you don't realize what that how that affects you, especially as getting cold because you sweat so much easier. Um, and, you know, it might be 45 degrees. And you're like, oh, this is nothing. But you get all sweaty getting in there. It's high humidity. And you're like, why am I colder now than you know, if it was the same temperature back home. And Andrew had this experience when he used to work at a sporting goods store. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where guys would come down here and you can tell some of those stories. Yeah. We had every year, like clockwork, there'd be guys come down in January from like Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, like wherever. And they would come down here. And I guess they were looking at the weather forecast. And it's kind of like what I, what I was saying to you. It's, it's pretty mild compared to probably what they're leaving to come down here to hunt. So they wouldn't bring their cold weather stuff. And they'd be in the bow shop freaking stop. We carried Sitka and dude, they would come in there and drop a grand on Sitka gear because they didn't bring any cold weather and they're here for like seven days, uh, cold weather gear. And they're like, dude, it's just, 
like I don't know the wind and the the humidity like the wet cold is just different than I guess what they were used to I mean that was like routine that would happen every year so like I don't know how it is where you normally hunt so that that's that is something to be mindful of is uh you know it's, it's gonna be humid for sure so bring everything basically all right <laughs> when you yeah. when you're about a few days out from leaving just look at the forecast and uh and you'll you'll see what to do okay um with what what setups do you guys run as far as like how are you going to sit on the ground are you i mean i know there's a thousand ways to skin a cat and i know a lot of it's situational but i guess mainly what i'm wondering is what kind of trees am I going to be typically dealing with? Are we going to be dealing with a bunch of branches and crazy leaning stuff? Or is it going to be like a bunch of like, cause I'm watching Jordan Barnes walk through like what looked to be something the size of Yellowstone and there's nothing but gum trees. And then all of a sudden it's a cane thicket, but like the trees didn't look like they had any branches hanging low. So like, I didn't know if I could one stick up there. Like, what what do you think I'll be dealing with in that aspect? When I hunted this place earlier this year, I was one sticking. So okay. I, I would just, I would do that, honestly. Okay. Yeah. Because, because there might be some situations where you've got to get in kind of a weird tree. Uh, but there's going to be plenty of trees that are like climber friendly, which I love to one stick in. Because I don't have to do anything weird. I can just right. shoot up that thing in two minutes and I'm done. Uh, but you you still have that flexibility where if you got to go around stuff, you can, especially talking about getting away from the pressure, kind of kicking it back to that. Mm -hmm. Those guys here you're running into will all be using climbers. Like you might I run into <laughs> the saddle, but they're all going to be using climbers. So if you want to get away from them, get away from the climber trees. Okay. Find on those edges where there's holes in the canopy, uh, stuff like that. Like, the, where the thickets are that we talked about earlier that's where you're going to find your wonky trees that you're going to need something like a one stick or whatever to get into uh outside of a climber so you're going to get away from pressure and be on the deer at the same time so it's just a good setup that's phenomenal advice i might bring a one stick and a small platform so that way if i am in one of those little weirdos trees where you've got a bunch of lean leaning crap forked crap whatever um i'm not leaning with it because that is the one downside of a one stick you can be set up not so fun uh but that's i like that all right um you said you hadn't had a lot of rain down there when you when you get i guess this is tough to really ask but i'll ask it anyway when you're coming in close to the you know i've never been in a swamp so like are you looking at very gradual um elevation change underwater or is it going to be like really really shallow for a really long time to where i'm going to have to walk through like you know 50 yards or whatever through the end of the swamp to get to land am i going to be able to run my kayak up to the bank how will that work you think Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. Listen, I've had I've had instances out here where you can walk a hundred yards through ankle deep water, no problem. I've had instances where there's you know deeper creeks that you can't cross. And I had one instance 
where there was like a little muddy area and I was going to go cross it in my knee boots. And I take a step and I go straight up to my crotch in like quicksand, basically. And don't hit a bottom. And I don't hit the bottom. And I like, the only thing that stops me is my crotch, basically. And I've got like one leg out, one leg in. And I'm like almost doing the splits. And, and Jacob, Jacob, you were there. And so I turn around, Jacob like drag, helps me get out of this. And I get up and of course my whole right leg is like muddy and wet now. And I feel something starting to bite me. I'm like, what the hell is that? And I lift my pants like up and I have freaking leeches all over me. <laughs> Man. So, yeah, Alabama, dude. I'm not coming anymore. <laughs> God. I wonder if we saw the cotton. Yeah, it was, it was the exact same. Yeah, exact same day. Yeah. Told you it was Jurassic Park, man. But yeah, so, I mean, some of the stuff, like if you're getting flooded timber, a lot of it's going to be pretty gradual. The elevation gain is very, very gentle for the most part. Um, you know, the edge of the water, you know, you could find some cut banks where you might have a three foot, you know, drop from the water level to like, you know, where you have to get up, which makes it a little bit trickier, you know, trying to get out of a kayak, but a lot of that stuff you can kind of pull up to and then just hop out of your kayak and get up on that. So uh, it'd be a little mix of everything. That's why we kind of answered yes for it, just because you could have so many different situations here. Um, that's why, like, to me, it's better to overpack and overprepare and maybe not use everything, but at least you have it if you find a certain situation like, dude, if I can cross through this or get through this spot and I've got the right gear to do it, uh, that can make the difference between, you know, killing a mature buck on the trip and, you know, maybe not getting an opportunity. So, uh, you know, that that's that's one of the reasons, especially on trips like this and hunting these kind of areas, I like to bring a lot of different things, uh, a lot of tools in the tool bag, just so in any situation I've got something to kind of, help implement if I need to cross through, you know, a certain body of water or again, deal with the mud situation. Uh, and that's why I was telling you previously before the podcast, you know, you can bring hiking boots if you want, but like if you're getting in the timber, especially close to the water, you're going to need at least rubber boots, if not hip waders. Um, you're not going to find a lot of like, especially because of how dry it's been. Like we had such a dry summer and early fall, really all the way through November, like early November that a lot of stuff that typically would be flooded like back in the timber probably is going to have a little bit of water but it's not going to be knee deep um so i'm not overly worried about that but again if you're trying to cross like a creek or something like that you're gonna have cut banks it's gonna be steep on the sides you'll probably be walking through you know a foot and a half to two feet of water to get to the other side it's not like you're necessarily gonna be able to jump across it um so you know again the more you can implement the kayak and kind of get to some spots where you're literally the best bet, and some of the guy, we, there's a guy we're looking to interview in our show who we had on before, and he's a master at hunting these river bombs in Alabama. And there's a lot of times he talks about he will literally pull his boat up to the bank and he'll climb a tree above his boat, and that's how close to the water he hunts because a lot of that thick cover, kind of like what Alan Summerford had told you, runs right along that water's edge, and that's where a lot of those deer will want to travel. They don't want to necessarily travel through the wide open hardwoods. Right. Um, so it, a lot of times less is more. Like if you can get far enough back in, or far enough back into a spot that makes sense for a deer to travel through, sometimes it's literally pull your kayak up or pull your boat up and climb a tree right there. And that's going to be your best opportunity to shoot one. Hey everybody, Rick here from Fueled by the Outdoors. And I'm here to tell you about a wonderful company, Saddies, custom ammunition and gun works. 
Aaron Satterfield and his family have been turning out some awesome game loads lately. Uh, I've been using the Saddies Fatties uh, turkey loads, and I got to tell you, they stop a bird dead. Chris uh, used a 20 gauge this year. I used a 12. Josh used a 20. And uh, my son actually killed one with a 410 this year with uh, one of the Saddies loads. And my God, do they put the birds down like crazy. Aaron Satterfield and his family have a wide ranging array of ammunition, custom game loads, predator loads, turkey loads, the Saddies Fatty, and also they do gun work. Please get a hold of them with any questions that you have in terms of your custom ammunition needs. Go to saddiesllc.com. That's S-A-T-T-I-E-S-L-L-C.com and tell them that Rick from Fueled by the Outdoors sent you. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I feel like most people are not going to do that. So that sounds like a way to kind of avoid some pressure, I guess. I could be wrong about that, but um, all right. So circling back to food, obviously we talked a little bit about the the water oaks. What else are we looking at here? Obviously browse, but what you, you got a, like a top three plants that we're looking for that they browse on? Uh I mean, if you could find some uh, some honeysuckle, that's always good. But there's a lot of stuff up there that I'm not super familiar with. But generally speaking, again, going back to those areas where you're going to have like a break in the swamp where uh, you've got that thicker cover along the water's edge, there's going to be like weird stuff like that, uh, like arrowhead looking plant, like duck potato or something like that. I don't know if it's the same thing because i know that's up north but similar stuff like that like aquatic vegetation that's exposed they'll eat that um anything green honestly yeah okay. and there should be a lot of stuff green still if if you get in some of these big hardwood stands it may look like a a wasteland like there's no browse but when you get to the edges of that and again where all that thick covers along the water line is also where a lot of that browse those browse species are at uh in form species so it's like a double-edged sword, like they're bedding in things that they can also eat as well. It's not like they have to necessarily travel a super long distance in order to go get food. A lot of times where deer select to bed, especially in the Southeast, is also an area that they can literally stand stand up in, walk within a 20-yard circle of them, browse all day long, lay back down, and then get to moving again. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes it challenging. But again, now we have the that late pre-rut, early rut you know, time period that we're able to capitalize on. So the bucks at that point aren't so worried about the food sources other than trying to find does in those areas. So again, trying to capitalize on that movement from point A to point B as they're making their rounds in the swamps. That's where I think we're going to have the most opportunity. And again, those browse species kind of play a part to it, especially for like where the does are going to be at. But you're going to be able to see a lot of tracks in this area. I mean, soft ground, you're going to be able to see tracks very easily. So you're going to be able to see and dictate especially with trails of like where deer are kind of dispersing to, they're traveling to potentially feed at, you're going to see tops of different plants being nipped off. Um, and then also you're going to be able to find buck tracks in a lot of these areas pretty easily. And a, a really good track down here is a four finger wide track. Um, you know, if you find something like that, it's not necessarily a running track, you know, the, the length between uh, the steps of the, the hooves of the deer between 10 to maybe 12 inches or so, eight to 12, eight to 14 inches um that's four fingers wide it's not necessarily sliding down the mud that's gonna be a really good deer okay um you talked about 
them being susceptible to calling, do you have a lot of experience with calling in bucks on public down there? I've killed two this year by calling them in, in Alabama. So, yeah. Seven months before they're even running? Oh, well, those areas are, are running a little bit earlier than where we're going to be at. Okay. Um, still kind of pre-rut. Okay. So we're really like pre-rut, late pre-rut time period. This is like the fourth rut we're going to be hunting this year. Yeah. Like traveling around, you know, because we, we hunted it in Arkansas and we've hunted two different ones in Alabama so, so far. Yeah. And we're, well, really, it'll be the fifth technically because we're we're gearing up to go on a hunt here in mid-December that's going to be like a rut hunt. And then we're going to be. So, Al- you know. yeah. So for listeners that don't understand Alabama, maybe you live in the Midwest. Alabama has, and when we say like different ruts, it's not like a secondary rut we're talking about. Alabama, if you go look, Google online the Alabama rut map, I think it's six different distinct rut time periods throughout the state based off different counties and a lot of it based off where they've done restocking efforts from different deer from different parts of Alabama, different parts of the country, all that kind of stuff. So you have like different like areas that have slightly different genetics and because of those deer and, you know, they haven't been here all that long with the restocking efforts, they all have different timings of the rut. So you could be in one county and the rut could be late November, the first week of December, and then literally the next county over 30 miles over, it could be mid-June time period is when the rut actually kicks in. So it's it's a pretty cool opportunity, but that's where we're able to capitalize on. But getting back to your, your point of calling, this area we're going to be at uh, has a pretty good number. Um, it has a pretty good number buck to doe ratio, but also uh, mature bucks. Uh, and just because of the timing of when we're going to be there, kind of that upper bell curve of the rut where some some does are coming in heat, but they're not all in heat. Um, they should be extremely culpable, especially with grunting and then even with rattling as well. Um, I will say this: you can bring some big old sheds down here, but you know it ain't going to sound like Alabama. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to bring my Alabama antlers with me. <laughs> yeah, bring, bring a good, bring a, a, a okay set of two year old antlers down here. It'll be perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, but it also depends on where you're at. Like, if you're in a big feed area, like wide open timber, and you're calling, you're going to have a lot less luck calling and having success of bucks coming in there. Versus if you're a lot tighter to some of that security cover where they're going to feel a lot more confident to come in and investigate what's going on. Um, and, and again, both of my bucks I, I called and killed this year in Alabama uh, acted completely different. One came in within five minutes of doing a rattling sequence, started opening up a scrape right in front of me at 35 yards. And I shot him at 25 yards. Um, the other one, uh, he came in 10 to 15 minutes after doing a grunt, tending grunt sequence with a grunt call, and he was extremely cautious coming in working through some really thick cover. He was really, you know, being very meticulous on his steps. I heard him coming at about 20 yards and I shot him at 10 yards. Um, so, you know, it, it's not like they're all going to come running in, but you could find that one deer. But I think calling is going to work extremely well for us if you put yourself in the right position. And again, find an area that not only has like the doe sign, like you're seeing doe tracks there, you have the security cover, but you're also seeing buck sign in the area, specifically rubs and scrapes. In these areas, you're going to find Based off past history, you're probably going to find a lot of rubs and a lot of really good rubs. Now, are good rubs a little bit different from probably, you know, if I was up in Ohio, good rubs? Like, probably not going to see a whole bunch of nine, 10-inch diameter trees being rubbed. But, you know, you find, you know, some trees the size of a, a, a Nalgene bottle that's got good tine marks, you know, up to, you know, your mid-chest. You know, that's going to be a pretty good deer. Okay. 
So that was going to be my my next question was what about the sign is telling you that it's a, a good buck. So, all right. Um, man, this is, I could, I could do this for days. Yeah. I could t I'll take the height of a rub over the diameter of a rub. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I, I don't pay attention to, um, the diameter of a tree that a deer is rubbing. I don't, don't get me wrong. I think generally, a bigger deer can tend to take it out on a bigger tree because those smaller ones aren't doing it for them. But I mean, I think there's so many things that you can unpack from a rub that you can see and break down that like when we were scouting Kentucky this winter, you saw like the actual tine gouges in a lot of these trees. And um, they're just, they're shredded deep. Some of them you could tell had been rubbed every single year where it was like through the bark and into the core of the tree. I'm like, oh, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Um, but that's good stuff. So you, it's crazy to me that deer still respond, mature deer still respond to calling so much like that down there with all the pressure and everything. Your, your last buck, the one where, you're laughing at me because I was like, why, why'd you shoot a deer at 10 yards with a rifle? Like, why are you going to be afraid you're going to miss him or what, bro? Um, <laughs> but was that a mature deer? Yeah. And that, and that's one of those spots. And we talked about this because that cover that was in more pines. It, we're not going to be hunting anything really like that where we're going to be hunting. Um, but that's the situation. Also, when you talk about the calling, calling doesn't work all the time down here. Like I uh. failed years calling but it's because i was doing it at the wrong time of the year i was doing it more so during like the middle of the rut during the peak breeding and the problem is where, where we are at it well just alabama in general alabama has a extremely high deer herd numbers i think we kill over 225,000 deer a year and that's not putting a dent in the population okay um so the problem is when you get to, towards peak rut these bucks have so many different options for does. They're not trying to fight over any kind of does. Where I've had the most success the last couple of years calling is when we're timing hunts, just like this hunt, where you're on that back end of the pre-rut, you're coming into the first couple of does coming to heat. Couple of does, that makes sense. Those mature bucks are a lot more competitive and they'll go out of their way to come and investigate if they think that a buck is potentially with a hot doe. And that's where, again, tending call, attending grunt call works extremely well. Um, and then also, you know, rattling as well. Uh, I've had more success grunting deer in than rattling down here. Um, and then also snort wheeze. Dude, I love snort, doing a snort wheeze, uh, especially in the area that has like what I would say is a lot of mature buck sign in and around where does are using. I've had success even blind calling using snort wheezes and, and bringing bucks in um, just because it's such an aggressive call that if a buck's going to snort wheeze, He's defending something, and at that time of the year, he's going to be defending a hot doe, so another mature buck's going to come in and try to take that doe or potentially fight that buck. I like it. Um, Another question I had for you guys, because I keep hearing this over and over, how common are blowdowns down there, like, like more than one tree, like multiple trees? Straight line winds and tornadoes all the time. You're going to find a lot of that. So that's a thing that okay so, I, I, all right 
in wow. different areas, different pockets of some of this public, you're going to find more of it than others. Uh, some of it just comes down to like, has a tornado come through there, a lot of straight line winds. But because of the water levels and everything, especially if we have a lot of like high water, potentially you could have a lot more fallen trees come down. Uh, and we have a lot of really bad winter storms. And I say winter storms, we're not talking about snow and ice. We're talking about like really bad thunderstorms, super high winds, 50, 60 mile an hour winds uh, at different times of the year which will blow down a ton of trees. So like another piece of public, um, that's some river bomb swamp stuff that we hunt. Uh, me and Andrew went and scouted this summer and found an area where straight line winds had come through. And I'm talking about blew down for 120 yards, trees right on top of each other, like dominoes. Um, and I don't know if we'll find a bunch of that, but you're definitely going to find quite a few down trees, especially some bigger oaks and stuff like that laying out in these swamps. You guys use that when you're hunting? It's a pretty good funnel if you can find them in the right spot. Okay. All right. You find that close to the water line where they got to go up and around it. You sit right there, you might have some uh, some pretty good luck. That also can be isolated cover if you're in an otherwise uh, kind of monotonous area. That that little patch of blowdowns that you find, or a big patch of blowdowns, <laughs> that could be the cover that is holding. Maybe, I mean, maybe it's not like holding that buck, but it might be holding a bunch of does that he's interested in right now. So like that's the stuff that I go straight to, you know, if I find it on a map and it's day one, I'm going straight to that. And I'm I'm going to look around the edges of it and then I'm going to bounce. The and I'm just going to hit thick cover basically over and over and over again. Until I find what I'm looking for. Also, we've interviewed a couple of guys from Arkansas, hunt big river bottoms. And a common trait we've heard from a couple of these different guys that hunt these real big river bottoms with big hardwoods is tend to see the deer if you have a blown down tree that's acting as a funnel you know say on the edge of the water edge of a slough something like that they tend to go around the canopy side of the tree more so than the trunk side and the root ball side and um that's what these guys have seen i haven't personally seen that just because I, I haven't i don't hunt this i don't hunt a lot of this stuff as often as like hill country forest but both of these two guys independently have said this and their thoughts are with the canopy, because there's no typically all leaves have fallen off on the tree, uh, you know, if it's been laying there for a little while, the deer can see around the canopy a little bit easier than they can walk around, you know, a trunk that might be two or three, you know, feet in diameter, like a really big tree and also a giant root ball. So they seem to feel a lot more confident and, and comfortable going around the treetop or the canopy side. And that's where a lot of these guys typically will hang a set. They'd rather be on the canopy side than the log side and the root ball side of a tree. That is the juice of the episode there. That is, <laughs> I like that, man. That I would have never even thought to ask that. That's really good. So if you're looking to funnel deer through a, a bunch of blowdowns or whatever, sit on the canopy side of the tree. Yeah. Or that could be like your micro funnel within a larger funnel. Cause you know, in, in these areas, your best funnel might be like, pretty wide so further than a bow shot but if you got a big falling down tree right in the middle of it and you can basically sit on that you know and and it's all it's also kind of like a at least what i've seen is it can kind of serve as a focal point talking like you know a single blow down or maybe a couple on top of each other and otherwise wide open woods the deer i don't know if they use it as a point of reference or what but they'll kind of gravitate towards it a little bit so i like i like if it's if it's monotonous, but I'm like, hey, this little 200 yard stretch between you know this water and that water, I think they're coming through here. But it's 200 yards and I'm bow hunting, like anything like that, I'll kind of key in on 
just to, you know, get in the spot in the spot, you know. Are these snakes we're talking about going to be on the ground or are they going to be like up in the trees too? They're going to be in your sleeping bag. They're going to be yeah, you're crawling up in your engine water now. I should have never asked that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're going to be on the ground. Yeah. They're going to be on the ground. Unless you pick them up and put them in your backpack. I mean, for I mean, you know, yeah, that's true. But don't leave your back backpack sitting on the ground open too long. You know, it might slither up in there. But hey, you'll find the cotton mouse. You'll, I mean, yeah, you'll probably if you start seeing them, you're gonna catch on quick to where they like to hang out. Like if you're around like a beaver dam or something, like you're gonna see a snake Get out on the trees in the water and shit. Yeah, like any kind of like woody cover, yeah. like that. Hot tip with a kayak. I would not be parked my kayak underneath the overhang on the side of the water. <laughs> I want a snake to fall in your kayak. Yeah, but it won't be a venomous snake. I wouldn't worry about that. I mean, you have a little old, you know, water snake or like a green tree snake or something falling on you. I mean, it'd be entertaining, but he's not going to kill you. I know. We, we got a listener of ours. A quick story. We got a listener of ours uh, from uh, Mississippi. And uh, he was telling me he does a lot of kayak access, hunting some of those um, different management areas in the Delta in uh, Mississippi. And uh, he said he normally goes in without a headlamp. Like once he like parks the kayak, he'll like walk in because open timber, he doesn't feel like he needs a headlamp. So he was going to walk this drainage down and come up in this oak flat he was going to set up in. And he said when he got there, he realized there was a big down tree in the ditch that he was going to walk up on, dry ditch. And he said he just had a feeling he had to turn his light on. When he turned his light on, there was like eight to ten water moccasins, which are venomous, in that treetop, like all at eye level, like from like you know foot off the ground to like five six feet off the ground, kind of like all in the tree. And uh, he's like, at that point, he's like, I just turned around and decided to go to a different spot. It wasn't worth it. So <laughs> I'm like, we we won't have to probably deal with that because that was during early bow season for him, like in October. But uh, yeah, I just just a little precaution. A little precaution goes a long way. There's a long ride. Just, just look out for him. Don't, don't 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 put your hand down the water. You know, don't you know, don't don't go splash around. Don't be sticking your hand in holes in the woods. Or might, might have like might have a water puppy come and give you a nibble, which <laughs> that's not a catfish, it's an alligator. So, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's gonna be a fun adventure, nonetheless. Carry a pistol and an EpiPen full of anti venom for water water moccasin. Uh, <laughs> damn, man, this is crazy. Yeah, I won't lie. I I didn't give much thought to the snakes, and now you guys are there going to be a bunch of snakes, or are you guys scared to death of snakes? That's what we got to find out. We uh, hey, listen. We live around a lot of snakes, and yeah, it's got decent snake numbers. So. It, no, it's the snakiest place I hunt for sure. They're like, I'm not just saying that. <laughs> it is the snakiest place I hunt. I don't get freaked out by snakes because. You know, has got you just learn how to like deal with them after a while, you know. Yeah, if, yeah. if you don't look for them, you don't see them. That's, that's, right. that's my rule of thumb. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather see them. That's <laughs> for sure. I'll definitely have trekking poles though, so I can use them as a a little snake deterrent. Um, yeah, that, this, this is the one advantage. Like if you if you talk to anybody in the south, most guys are going to own a pair of snake boots, like rubber boots that are you know 16, 18 inches tall. If you're wearing a pair of those, I'm not worried about water moccasins unless yeah. like they just, you know, I just happen to run into one and just like scares me for a second. But it's like they're not going to get through that boot and they don't strike very high anyways. It's not like a big like timber rattlesnake, which we're not going to really have to deal with down there. Um, so it, it's not that big of a deal. That's why I just tell everybody, you know, if you have snake boots or snake gators, you're going to be fine. It's no big deal. It's just 
more of a thing like you happen to come across when you're like, oh crap, but I'm like, I'm all good. It's yeah. no big deal. Don't pick the thing up. You know, don't become a Florida man I, and you know get on the news. So yeah. Like, dude, we've stepped on them before, like multiple times and not gotten bit just because I don't know. I don't know if they're just not that aggressive or, or what. Uh but yeah, as long as you're not messing with the snake, you're pretty good. I mean, don't obviously try not to step on a snake, but like I would like I was talking to a listener who uh just moved down here from Wisconsin and he oh, was wow. in some of these swampier areas and he was asking about snakes. And I was like, man, like if you're worried about it, get some snake boots and just be vigilant and just kind of look for them. But I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't let it keep you out of the woods. I wouldn't let yeah. it I like, you know, just don't really worry about it that much. Just don't be stupid. Like, don't try to pick it up. Don't try to, you know, mess. Don't get close to it. Like, you're, you're saying you're bringing trekking poles. I wouldn't mess with it with a trekking pole. I would just go around it unless you absolutely can't go around it. And then I would get a big, long stick and fling it off in the woods somewhere. I would not use a trekking pole because that's a, a little bit closer than I'd want to be yeah. if it's a decent sized snake. Uh, but other than that, man, you really don't have much to well, worry about. And also, like, I would not worry about them one bit in the mornings because it's going to be cool enough in the mornings. Like, snakes wouldn't even be on my mind. It's more like the afternoon. You know, you get down midday, maybe move to a different spot because we'll probably be hunting dark to dark in a lot of these areas uh, just because the time of the year, like, it's going to be good at pretty much any point of the day. Um, it's more the afternoons is where I'm, I'll be a little bit more just – you know, paying attention to the surroundings as you're walking through stuff, take your time, you know, not be in a huge rush, but yeah, it's, it's not a huge deal. Uh, it's just funny. Cause I, I love also joking with guys who don't live in areas with a lot of snakes about, you know, some of our snakes we have down here. Yeah. I'm not afraid of snakes, but I guess there's just a really a different feel because it's foreign to me. Like I've never worn snake boots or snake gators. I don't own them. And I'm hell Jake sent me um a video or he posted a video where him and Corey found a rattlesnake in Indiana. Yeah. That's not, you know, a, a state that I think of that has venomous snakes. I know they do, but I was like, damn man. And it, it was a pretty good one. Our our buddy Tyler Westell that you guys had on your your big buck tips. Um can you guys still hear me? Okay, there you are. Um, he had a big one in Indiana as well. So, but there's just something about being in the swampy water with just completely different trees. Y'all got all these overhanging limbs with Spanish moss and uh, Confederate ghosts that are ready to kill me. <laughs> so, yeah, funny story about that. Yeah. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew's hunting club, uh, that's not like, five miles from where we're sitting right now. Uh, there is actually so there's an old Confederate railroad uh, depot that's on that property, and there's an actual Confederate soldiers' grave on that property. And oh, wow. I've hunted within thirty yards of that grave. And I told Andrew, Andrew's like, man, that ghost's gonna get you. I'm like, dude, I'm gonna if he comes out, I'm gonna ask him where's the bucks at because he, he hey, man, you seen that big ten point? He, he definitely knows where they're at if he's out here all the time. So, but uh, but yes, yeah, I brought that up because I've joked with Andrew all the time about about the old Confederate ghosts on his place that there is one. I'm like, dude, just point me in the direction where the bucks hanging out. So, so you don't feel like snakes are an issue walking in in the morning in the dark? 
No, no. no. It'll, it'll be cold enough. It's not going to be an issue. Okay. But obviously, I would assume that last light probably is an issue since they've it's been warm. Well, it's mostly midday. It's It, it has a lot to do with the sun uh, because, like, if you're in that 60 wow. degree – if you're in that 60 degree kind of frame, uh, they're not like super active and they're coming out to get that sun. So they'll be laying in the sun nine Just times out of ten. Thermoregulate basically. Yeah, like that's what I'm saying is like you'll learn pretty quick. Like you're coming up on like a brushy area with like a beaver dam and there's a bunch of sunlight on the ground. You're like, all right, where's the snake at? Mm -hmm. You know, but if you're just walking through like some thicker closed canopy stuff or if it's overcast, Probably not gonna see a snake. Yeah, especially if it's overcast. Like it could be sixty degrees, but if it's overcast with a little bit of a wind, I ain't worried about a snake. Yeah. Okay. That's that's pretty good info. The more you know, boys. <laughs> Stay alive. All right. Well, I really appreciate you guys doing this with me. I'm I'm super excited and really really grateful that you invited me down. Um, any any other last piece of ugh, last pieces of advice? you would offer have a good headlamp and have an extra headlamp in your backpack yep already done bring extra batteries one of the two yeah yeah one thing one thing about the swamps especially if you get like your water access and you're and you don't just hunt next to the water and you kind of walk a good ways the swamps i mean yeah of course we're all going to have you know our onyxes and everything like that but like you can get turned around in some of these areas uh depending on like what areas you go into so, you know, I, I would not want my light to die on me, you know, back in one of those spots. So if you use a rechargeable light, have a backup, make sure you charge it every night. You know, if you're using something that runs off, you know, double A, triple A batteries, have some extra batteries with you uh, just so you're not in that kind of situation. Plus, if you're using water access, I would want to have a very bright headlamp um, for that as well. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I would just pack and and mentally prepare to, to hunt dark to dark if you can every day. Uh those midday hours can be really good, especially if we do get, you know, increased pressure. A lot of that pressure, again, it's going to be guys and climbers, and it's going to be guys who are hunting from daylight to 9 or 10 a.m., and then they're coming back in about 2 p.m. and hunting until 4.30, which is when it's going to be getting dark down here. So uh, so that whole midday time frame, you got, you got people on both sides of it bumping deer around as they're either going back to their truck you're going to get them a biscuit or when they're coming back out into the woods, they're going to be bumping deer around. So like if you can stand it, if you can pack some lunch and, uh, and get comfortable and not even necessarily sit in the same spot all day, because I loathe doing that. Uh, but like even just get down and just move maybe to a midday spot, maybe move to an evening spot or just whatever the situation calls for, but just maximize your time in the woods. That's going to, that's going to be huge. Like that's going to increase your odds dramatically. Are you looking at targeting basically bedding in the morning and midday and then trying to look for food for the evening? Is that roughly your no, game? What are you doing? For me, it's it's kind of all re revolves around bedding, um, either bedding or just really good rut funnels yes. where uh, where you just have to like put your time in. Because that, that's what I hunted in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we hunted there a couple of weeks ago and I killed two bucks in a rut funnel like that where – I wasn't hunting feed. I wasn't hunting bedding. I was hunting kind of in between them. And it was just, you know, it's kind of an underwhelming looking spot because there's not actually a lot of sign in there, but it's just a good enough pinch point where it's like, if he's going from here to here, he has to walk through here. And you just kind of have to sit it and you're either going to see like one deer or you're going to see like 20 deer. 
or no deer. I mean, you know, that's yeah, kind of how it the goes. first time in that spot in Arkansas, I think we saw 15 deer by 11 a.m. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And it's and it's like that can happen here too. That's why I, I'm same thing with Andrew. Like I don't care. Food's not on the table. Like if, for me, like I'm not going to go see the feed tree unless there's some really good sign, some super thick cover close to it. Yeah. It's more so leaning towards the, the bedding areas, the the thicker bedding areas, and really. Like when we all get there walking and actually like intentionally, I want to kick some deer up and see where they're bedding. And then, okay, maybe I'm not going to come hunt that spot again. Maybe I will, you know, maybe I'll come back to it, circle back to it. Especially if you jump some does up, you jump some does up, does ain't going to leave. They're going to come right back to it, you know, the next day. Um, But try to figure out like, what are they using in this area? And then let's try to find what that, this area looks like on the map in other areas and then just go in there and hunt it um and again the name of the game is gonna be rut funnels you know anything you know dictating movement around water um you know timber that really necks down around these different sloughs and stuff like that's gonna be huge um you know these beaver these beaver dams the deer will travel those beaver dams all the time going from one side of the slough to another yeah. side of the slough instead of walking around the slough um all that kind of stuff is going to play a huge factor and that's what personally i'll be sitting on if i still have a tag in my pocket maybe tagged up by then but hopefully maybe well <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out what we're going to do in that situation, but it, it's going to be really good. Hit on that beaver dam thing a little bit more for me. Are they going to be on the top side, I would assume? Yeah, so uh, the beaver dams, uh, I mean, if anyone's lived around, you know, any place that has beavers, you know, these beavers will make very impressive dams. It's not like they're damming up like a little creek. Like sometimes they'll, they'll dam up a slough that might be 100 yards wide. And if a deer wants to go from one point of the slough, like again, the, the point that juts down towards the river to the other side of the slough, they may walk around the top of the slough or they may just walk that beaver dam all the way across, mm-hmm. especially if the beaver dam has a lot of grass and yeah. trees growing on it. Yeah. And there's a beaver dam like that in one of these spots where you have like these little islands and the deer will travel those beaver dams from one island to the next island to the next island through the swamp. They're not going through the water. So, but that also is a factor more so when we have a lot of wet years. This year's dry, so there's a good chance some of those swamps may be dried up and they might just be walking across the swamp, which can make it a little bit more difficult to pinch them down. But the beaver dams can be like absolute, like awesome funnels for funneling deer from like one side of the slough to the next side of the slough or from one island to another island um, or from, you know, a mainland you know, maybe there's a beaver dam, like a really big beaver dam that juts out and kind of like seals off a very small slough. And if there's a lot of cover on it, you can have a buck and some does bedded on those big beaver dams. Yeah, especially the older ones where they put mud on it and they built it up and it's been there for years and it's like a levee now. Yeah. Like the deer. Uh, Okay. See, I've never seen anything like that. We see like a, the biggest one I see might be the size of a car or something, but I never see like mud on top. It's just a pile of sticks. Basically. Yeah, some of these you can drive like a side by side across. <laughs> yeah, like they're huge. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, I've never seen. So, so imagine a beaver dam that's like you know six feet wide or four to six feet wide. That's got mud caked on it. Again, it makes it almost like a levee. That's got now trees growing up in it. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Been there for fifty years or something crazy like that. Headed to Vietnam to hunt deer. (laughs) (laughs) Where Forrest Gump Gump was at home and in the Vietnam. That's that's so crazy, man. Well, gentlemen, I'm really excited. Can't thank you enough. And, uh, dude, let's go down there and freaking bust some in the pump house.
Yeah, man, let's do it. Yeah, a lot of bloody arrows to be seen. I hope so. How uh, do you feel like your avid shots basically like any other bow hunting experience anywhere else? It, yeah, it, I mean, if you're if you're a hunter Hogan, you know, I'm sure you can step in a couple spots and shoot 70, 80 yards if you really want to. A lot of this stuff, especially getting some of those tight funnels, is going to be 40 and in. And some of the shots, I mean, sub 20 uh, if you're in the right spot. Mm-hmm. So, and like, you know, me and Jake Bimmer, we were talking about a spot because Jake's going to be hunting with us. And he sent me a pin of a spot. And I'm like, dude, if if it looks as good on the map as it does in person, you're going to have some shots and they're going to be 25 yards and in coming through that coming through that funnel. So yeah. that was that's the good, kind of stuff I'm looking for. That was a good looking pin. Just to brag a little bit before we go, you mentioned a gentleman by the name of Hunter Hogan. I found out today that I am ahead of him in the standings when it comes to the public land buck uh, category (laughs) in the bow hunting league. (laughs) I figured I was making jokes. They were like, yeah, you're number three. And I was like, oh, is Hunter Hogan number one and number two? Cause he freaking slays all over the place. And, uh, they were like, no, no, he's not in the top three. And I'm like, wait, what? And I guess there's like 190-something inch mule deer and then 170, 179-inch uh, whitetail. So kind of cool. I'm in the top three for now. Might be headed to Arkansas for the whatever they call it, the shoot down or something like that. Nice. So, all righty. Well, gentlemen, I will let you guys get off of here and continue on living your life. I know one of you has got a kid to get back to and Jacob has to continue doing whatever the hell he wants. Um, (laughs) So guys, I've been your host, Chris Leppert. Tonight we're joined by Jacob Myers and Andrew Maxwell of the Southern Outdoorsman. Thanks guys for tuning in. Have a great day. See you.